turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 16. Before we read, we'll, we'll read in just a moment, but we'll pray and invite the Lord's presence. Father God, we thank you for the privilege that we have of gathering in your name. And we thank you, Lord, that you have a word for us to hear today. And, and I just pray that you'd give us ears to hear what the Holy Spirit would say to us. I pray that our hearts would be open to receive. And Lord, I pray if there's anything that's of me, I would pray that I'd just fall to the ground. But your word that's eternal, that gives life, I pray it would find a good place in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you today remember a guy named Robin Leach? Who is he? He's a British guy. The lifestyles of the rich and famous. You probably remember him. The lifestyles of the rich and famous cookbook, recipes, and entertaining secret from the most extraordinary people in the world. We can get rid of Robin's picture now. It's kind of annoying me. Robin Leach had a TV show. It depends on how old you are. A lot of our young people would not remember that. But Robin Leach had a TV show in which he would travel around the world and see people's beautiful homes and their yachts. And you probably remember that show. They would take you into the home of a rich or a famous person. And they would show you around and you would see their country estate or their beach house. And when you'd go in, there'd be servants, there'd be tennis courts, swimming pools, fleets of luxury cars. Some of them may have a personal jet. Some of the homes would be waterfront homes and out back or they would have their yacht in the backyard. They'd have extravagant artwork and jewelry. And ordinary people would stand back in awe and and we would watch and see, wow, look how these people live. Usually these people who Robin would have on his show, these were people who had a wealth that the ordinary person cannot comprehend. There are a few limits to the things that these people could experience. They've gone to the best schools, the most exotic vacation locations, They rub shoulders with those who are powerful and famous. They experience things on the weekend that most people would never experience in a lifetime. Experience many just ordinary things, traveling to Paris or flying here and there. Now, I'd like you to compare that to the life of a homeless person. Someone who has to carry everything that they own with them at all times. Imagine a person who has no place to sleep, who sleeps on a park bench or who wakes up in the morning underneath a bridge somewhere. Imagine no place to take a shower, no place to wash your clothes, or no money to go to the laundromat, no place to get out of the rain, no place to sleep at night, no place to cook, no place to store your food. Imagine what it would be like, you know, whenever you eat lunch, if there's stuff left over, you can put it in the refrigerator. A homeless person can't do that. There's many people who, they don't have a refrigerator to put it in. When they get a few things to eat, they don't have a cupboard to put that in. Everything they have, they have to carry with them. Imagine having to depend upon the charity of others for many of the things that we take for granted every day. The rich person lives in excess, and the things that he wastes, The excess waste would be more than enough to provide for the basic needs of the homeless guy. Imagine how discouraging it would feel to wake up shivering underneath a bridge somewhere 
and realize, dude, this is my life. Imagine a person who's had, maybe they grew up in a good home and they had all kinds of opportunities and for some reason or another, perhaps they squandered those opportunities and they wake up living underneath the bridge or living in the woods somewhere, underneath a canopy, along a stream somewhere and just waking up there and saying, my Lord, what am I doing here? How did I end up here? How did I get here? And realizing, coming to the realization that this is my life. I live under a stinking bridge. I lost my home. My family has left me. Imagine just waking and experiencing that and the hopelessness that one would feel. But even in that state, we have uh, technical difficulties with the throat today. Imagine how depressing or discouraging that would be to wake up and you don't have anything. You don't have a job. You don't have any money. You don't have a place to sleep. You've lost it all. You don't have food. You don't have a place to shower. To use a bathroom, you, you have to go to a gas station somewhere. There's no place even to use a bathroom. Imagine how that would feel. But for the homeless person, at least there is hope. Because someday, I may be able to get another job. Someday, someone may have compassion upon me and help me out. Who knows, maybe a relative will invite me into their home or maybe someone will take pity upon me or have concern for me. And even if that doesn't happen, someday I'm going to die. And it won't always be like this. In the most difficult situation that you and I experience, we realize that someday we are going to die. This difficult experience that we are in, I won't be in that experience any longer. We think of our prisons where people are locked up for 23 hours a day, and and at least they have the hope. I may never get out and see the green grass, but I do know this, that one day I will get out of here because at least I will die, and this will be over. It'd be horrible to wake up and realize that you're homeless. But we're going to talk in a few moments about waking up somewhere else and realizing that the state that you are in is the state that you will always be in. In Luke chapter 16, verse 19, it tells us this. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen. And he lived in luxury every day. At his gate laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's tables. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham from afar away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in the fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your life you received your good thing while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all of this, 
Between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. And he answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abram replied, They have Moses and the prophets to listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not listen to the Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now, Jesus tells a story about a specific rich man. He says there was a certain rich man, a specific man, and a specific beggar, and the beggar's name was Lazarus. The beggar's life was like a bad dream from which no one could escape. He was poor, he was sick, he was alone, and he was hungry. His body was covered with sores. His needs went unmet in this life. He laid at the rich man's gate, and the Bible tells us that he longed to eat the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. Now, it would indicate that the rich man did absolutely nothing for Lazarus, that he had no concern for Lazarus. And it says that the dogs would come, and and they would lick Lazarus's wounds, these sores that would weep, and he was in all kinds of agony, and he was in all kinds of pain, and, and he just laid there at the gate of the rich man's house, and the rich man had no compassion upon him. Lazarus lived a horrible existence in this life. There was no one to care for him. Evidently, maybe his family had died. Maybe his family had rejected him. Maybe he was an orphan. We don't know what the state of affairs were. We just know that Lazarus had no one to take care of him. When he died, there was even more humiliation because there was no one to bury him. It says that the angels came and carried him to Abram's bosom. The rich man had everything in this life. His life was like a dream come true. There was nothing he did not have. Every day he feasted. Every day he lived in excess. Every day he had whatever he wanted. Whatever he wanted. It was kind of like the Christmas banquet at Shady Maple every day. huh? Every day of his life. Whatever he wanted, whatever he wanted to eat, he lived in wealth and he lived in prosperity. He had whatever he wanted. When he dies... The scripture says that he was buried. He was honored in his death. In those times, it was a big deal when wealthy people died. We have a slide we want to show you, I believe. When wealthy people died, you guys know where this is? Petra, Raiders of the Lost Ark. This summer I was there. Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know what this is? Like people think it's like, oh, that's a business. All that is, I know what that is. That's a government building that's carved out of the rocks, and it was a tomb. They have these beautiful tombs like this. It's huge. You can't imagine how big and tall it is. The pictures don't do it justice. It's carved out of the rock, and that was a tomb for one rich man. 
so that as long as he lived, everybody went by would know how great he was. It would be a memorial to his wealth and to his power and how important he was. This rich man died and he was buried. And when it talks about him being buried, what they would mean is he would have been buried in a tomb. He would be someone who was honored, someone who everyone, and when you see this, when you go to Petra, what you do is you walk down this canyon and there's some places it's, there's some places it might be this wide. There's other places it might be about from here to there. And it's stone walls, sheer cliffs right up the side, beside you. Years ago, well, long, long time ago, they had water running in a trough down along there. It's probably a half mile through this canyon that you walk through. And then when you walk, there's this place where the tour guide tells you to turn around and start walking backwards. And then at a certain point, he says, stop, now spin. And when you do, you come into this big opening And here is the tomb. Here is the image that you see in front of you as you come into this other canyon with all of these tombs cut out of the rocks. So this man would have been someone who was honored greatly. And that's how the rich man was. He was honored like life was good. Even in his death, everyone was exalting him. And Lazarus was forgotten about. No one even to bury him. No one to care about him. The important thing is not where he was buried. The next part of the verse, the next part of the scripture is what's of the account is what's important. Because it talks about where he ended up. It says, in hell, where he was in torment, he opened up his eyes, and across this chasm, he saw Abraham with Lazarus in his bosom. Now, I know this. I know that there are many people today who feel they are too advanced that as a society, that as a people, we are too advanced to believe in the foolishness of hell. There's theologians who want you to think that hell's not a real place. Well, I just want to tell you this. I have never, ever in my life been to a funeral I have never been to a funeral in my life where the people who were standing there did not want to hope. They'll always be like, well, Uncle Buck, we know he's in a better place now. Uncle Buck isn't in a better place now. That's scoundrel. I have never been to a funeral where someone wanted to say of their grandmom, well, I know where grandmom is. She's dead and in the ground. That's it. That's the end of her. They never say that. Whenever people die... They always, and when a loved one dies, they always want to believe that there's got to be a place after this, that this isn't the end. And you'll hear maybe someone whose family member suffered, and they'll say, well, they're out of their suffering now. They're at peace now. It's ironic. I told you before about the funeral director, a young funeral director, when I was first in ministry, said to me, can I ask you something? Does everybody go to heaven? And I said, well, no, why? And he says, because... Every funeral I've done, the preachers all say that so-and-so isn't in heaven now. And does everybody go to heaven? There's those today who want us to believe. They think because we are so advanced as a society, we should no longer believe in the reality of a hell. But friends, God's words clearly teaches that there is a heaven and there is a hell. Hell is a place of eternal punishment. For those who reject 
the forgiveness and the mercy and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those whose names are not found written in the Lamb's book of life at the judgment seat of Christ, the Bible says that they will be cast into the lake of fire to be tormented forever and ever. There are some theologians who try to teach today a false doctrine of annihilation. What they say is that the pain will one day stop. Okay, well, maybe there is a hell, but the pain will one day stop. It'll one day end. The torment will come to an end, but that is not what God's word says. It says forever and ever and ever. It says that the fire will not be quenched. And, and so from our scripture, just a, a couple of things I want to share with you about eternity. The first one is, is that hell is going to be a place of eternal torment. It's going to be a place of torment. The Bible says that the rich man was in agony in the fire. He longed for Lazarus to simply touch the tip of his finger in water to calm his thirst. When you are really thirsty, what does someone dipping the tip of their finger and putting one drop on your lips do? To be honest, it doesn't do much for me. When I'm thirsty, I want like a 32-ounce thing of water. I want at least a quart when I'm really thirsty. And he's saying, just the tip of your finger. Listen to this quote that I read. Someone wrote, it said, there's no way to describe hell. Nothing on earth can compare with it. No living person has any real idea of it. No madman in wildest flights of insanity ever beheld its horror. No man in delirium ever pictured a place so utterly terrible as this. No nightmare racing across a fevered mind ever produced a terror to match that of the mildest hell. No murder scene with splashed blood and oozing wound ever suggested a revulsion that could touch the borderlands of hell. Let the most gifted writer exhaust his skills in describing this roaring cavern of unending flame. Oh, he will not have even brushed in fancy the nearest edge of hell. Hell was originally prepared for the devil and his angels, not for man. Little wonder that there is joy in heaven over one sinner who has repented. He has been saved, he's been redeemed, he's been rescued. It makes the hearts in heaven glad. When we talk about hell being a place of torment, that's why Jesus said these words in Matthew chapter 9, verse 43. He says, if your hand causes you to stumble, I'll just forget about it. He says, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. Jesus' words. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell. Where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Our second thing. Hell is going to be a place of memory and remorse. It's going to be a place of memory and remorse. Many people will say stupid things, such as they're going to be partying there. They're going to have all their friends there. 
Others will say, you've heard they're going to sell popsicles. My friends, they're deceived. Hell's not going to be a place of partying. According to the word of God, it's going to be a place of torment. It's going to be a place of remorse. It's going to be a place of horror. The rich man said this. Now listen, he had this understanding in his mind. He could recognize Abraham. He could recognize Lazarus. And the rich man said, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not come to this party place. No, so that they will not come to this place of torment. He says, I don't want my brothers to experience this. Send Lazarus. There's a sense of regret. There's a sense of remorse. Send Lazarus. In hell, the rich man was able to see and think. He was able to remember his life here on earth. And he knew he did not want to see any of his brothers come to this place of torment. Have you ever done or said something that the moment you did it, you regretted your decision? Like, as soon as it came out of your mouth, maybe, now let's be honest, maybe some of us with areas of sin, there were things that we wanted to do. And the moment you took that step and you disobeyed God and you did whatever it is that you wanted to do, your heart, oh, why did I do that? Am I talking to anybody? You know what it's like. You're like, or maybe you made a decision or you, you made some kind of, of choice that affected other people in a bad way. And, and once you did it, there's nothing you could do about it. It was done. And you're like, ah, oh, oh, why did I do that? Oh, man, I can't believe I, I did that. I can't believe I said that. You know how troubling remorse is? That sorrow, that grief over wrong choices or wrong decisions. And sometimes there's things that you've said or you've done, it just makes you sick on your stomach when you think about it. It's like, ah. Maybe it was a missed opportunity. Maybe you had an opportunity to do something in business or you had an opportunity to do an investment or maybe did something with your retirement and, and you're like looking at it and you're like, oh, what was I thinking? Oh. And you can't sleep at night and, and it bothers you, those decisions that you made. One of the great torments of hell will be the memories of missed opportunities that men and women will be haunted by for all eternity. They'll be haunted by those missed opportunities, by those choices. Did you ever do something and you have to live with the consequence of your decision? And it like it affects you? And every time you're just like, ah, oh, daggone, rats. Why did I think that? Why did I act that way? Well, there's a lot of things that we do in this life that At some point along the way, we can do something about it. If you made a bad investment, well, you can make other investments and maybe someday get that back. If you've wronged somebody, you can go and you can apologize and you can ask for forgiveness. And and maybe that relationship can someday be restored or, or maybe healing can come in some way. But in hell, there's no going back. There's no undoing. There's... Well, you know, like there's, if you ever played the game solitaire on your computer, you can hit the undo button, right? 
You made a move and you're like, I don't like that move. And so you hit the undo button. Or on your computer, whenever you've made a change, sometimes I'm typing my message or typing things, and I realize I messed something up, and I can just go up and I can click on that little arrow back, and it undoes what I just did. Well, in hell, in eternity, that doesn't happen. You can click on the undo button, but it doesn't work. It's been disabled. Third thing quickly is hell is going to be a place of eternal frustration and anger. It's going to be a place of eternal frustration and anger. If you turn your Bibles to Matthew 13, 40, it says, As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin, and all who do evil, those who practice sin. They will throw them into the blazing furnace, And there, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Revelations 14, 10, it says, They too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. And they will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and forever. Can you imagine one fraction of a second? One millisecond after life. One millisecond after life. What Lazarus must have experienced. Man, I don't don't hurt anymore. My stomach's not hungry. I don't feel so beaten down. I don't feel so... These sores are gone. This heaviness, this weight that's upon me, it's gone. This feeling of second class, it's gone. A millisecond after death for the believer, they enter into the presence of God. A millisecond. The believer who suffered, who did without. You know, around the world, in America, we're a spoiled church. Let's just be honest. We are a spoiled people. Around the world, there's people who love Jesus very desperately and don't have enough food to feed their babies. Around the world, there's believers who are being persecuted because of the name of Christ. Around the world, there's people who do not have security because of civil wars and and no water and, and no clean facilities and people are suffering greatly. And yet they love Jesus with all their heart. And the millisecond after they die, they're going to be in his presence. Wow. I can't believe I'm here. Have you ever had one of those experiences in life? Or maybe you got to go somewhere you've always wanted to go. And you're like, I can't believe I'm here. Maybe it was a vacation place. Maybe it was something that you had a goal for a long time. And you finally got to be there. When Landon and I, we went to uh, spring training a couple years ago. And it was really cool because it's like, it's like in the very beginning of March and it's cold up here. And down there it was warm. And it was just him and I and we had time together. And it was like, man, I can't believe I'm here. This is really cool. There's going to be a time for people when they open up their eyes and they're going to be in the presence of the Lord. And Lazarus who suffered and did without so much, it was like, I can't believe I'm here. I mean, it was worth every bit of it. 
There's going to be other people. And the Bible says that broad is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. Many there be that follow it, the broad way. Few there be that find it, the narrow gate. There's going to be many people who an instant after death, they're going to wake up and they're going to say, how did I get here? Where am I? I told you the story last week. I believe I told you two stories that my brother was telling me. He was on that. Remember we talked about the we need more states to, I'm being facetious if you're a visitor. Our government legalizing the use of drugs. We don't have enough drunk people driving down the highways. Now we need high people. What an absurdity. But in that, I told you the story about my brother last week going to an accident scene. And the guy had left the, they'd taken him home from work early. They took him to a drug testing place. He was high. They gave him a drug test. Then they sent him home and they let him take his truck and he pulled out to the light. He bumped into someone, gets out, exchanges information, drives down the road another half mile, passes a car in a no passing zone, hits a lady head on. Her husband's following her in their car and and, uh, I believe killed her. He didn't even know what was going on. There was another story that he told me that same week. One of his other troopers he said the guy was really messed up. He couldn't sleep. On Route 1 outside of Dover, this lady gets in her car, and she's going the wrong way on the four-lane highway. Now, I'll just be honest with you. I don't understand how people... I can understand maybe going up the on-ramp, making a mistake and going up the on-ramp. I don't understand how you drive down a four-lane highway going the wrong way and don't notice that something's wrong. I don't understand that. She had gone the wrong way down the four-lane highway. She ran into this man and his two kids, a seven-year-old boy, the father, and I believe a 10- or 11-year-old little girl. My brother's friend pulled the little girl out of the car. She had been in the back seat, and he goes to the back window and drags her out. The cars were on fire. And as they're burning, this little girl screaming, wake me up. I got to be dreaming. Wake me up. Is this a dream? Is this a dream? The other three people were burned up in the fire. It was incredible fire, consumed the vehicles. And he said, the guy said they would have had to have been dead. It was a violent crash. They would have had to have been dead. And I said, you know why he's saying that? Because he can't live with the thought that what I saw, I saw those people burn. I can't live with the fact, I can't keep doing this if I think that they were actually, that there was some life left in them. And he did not have the time to get into them and the fire was burning and and all, they were able to get the little girl out. But he couldn't live with the fact to think that that little seven-year-old boy is alive and there was nothing he could do to pull him out of the fire. He couldn't live with the fact that father, that dad, that there was nothing he could do to pull him out of that fire. And that little girl said, wake me up. It's got to be a dream. Please, wake me up. Is this a dream? Now, I want to tell you something. There's going to be a day. It happens all the time. Every day, people are dying and slipping into eternity. And they're saying, the moment they get there, this has got to be a dream. Wake me up. Somebody wake me up. This can't be real. 
And yet there's a realization, my friend. The moment that they open their eyes on the other side of eternity, there's a realization, I believe with all my heart, they know exactly where they are. They know exactly where they are, and their heart and their mind is filled with remorse, but there is absolutely nothing, 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 nothing they can do. And the thing is, it's not going to be 30 years later, and it's going to stop. It's not going to be eventually this fire is going to burn me enough. See, a person who's dying in a fire, a person who's being burned alive, consumed in a fire, knows that eventually that pain is going to stop. There's a knowledge in their head, this is hurting, this is terrible, I got to get out of this, I got to get away from this, but there's this understanding, there's this assurance that eventually it's going to stop. That's why people jumped out of 9-11. That's why people jumped a thousand feet. They just said, I want this to stop. This is hurting too much. But in eternity, there is no end to the pain, to the suffering, to the remorse, to the grief, to the loss. My Lord, why do you think I preach on holiness to you? Why do you think we try to hold your feet to the path? Because our worst enemy the person who's done the most evil, horrendous things to you as a human being, we can't even fathom. We can't even fathom what hell is going to be like. And I know today's not a popular message, but friends, the church needs to hear about hell. It needs to motivate some people. It needs to stir some people's hearts because if we're not careful... It's your sons and daughters. It's your children and grandchildren. It's your neighbors and nephews. And let me say this to you. Whoever's name is not found in the Lamb's book of life, the word of God says there's no passes. That if a man or a woman's name is not found in the Lamb's book of life, they will be cast into the lake of fire, the final judgment. They'll be cast in the lake of fire where they'll be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And a million years from now, it won't be over. Two million years from now, it won't be over. A billion years from now, a billion years of torment and sorrow and grief and remorse and loss, it will not be over. It won't be over. Well, Pastor, what about three billion? Eventually, the fire has got to consume you. No, the fire is not quenched. The worm dieth not. What it means is it's going to keep consuming. Well, how can that happen? That's just the way it's going to be. It'll be burning forever and ever. And I know there's people who say they don't want to believe that. Well, if you don't believe that, then you can't believe in heaven either. Because God's word clearly teaches that. That state trooper is haunted by a little 10-year-old girl. Who's saying, wake me up. This has got to be a dream. He's haunted by that. Oh, he's seen all kinds of stuff, but it's hard for him to sleep at night. Because he's got little kids too. He has to tell himself, I think they were dead. It was a violent crash. I think they were probably already gone. He can't live with the fact of knowing that he was there. And as much as he tried, that seeing people cooked alive, he can't live with that. That's too hard for us to believe. In the same way, what you and I believe is, is a lot of times we tell ourselves things that aren't true. 
we tell ourselves, well, Aunt Bertha, she was a good person. Well, I know that she never really wanted anything to do with God, but I know, you know, she never went to church, and I know she never really accepted Jesus, but I'm just believing at the last minute. I'm just believing at the last minute that she called out to God. I'm going to tell you something. The chance of someone out, I'm sorry, but the chance of someone, if you've rejected God and spit in his face for years and for years, and the thought at the last minute, you think that your heart is going to be soft at that time? I know this, I know that if a person calls out to God, he's merciful and he forgives, he saves. However, we need to realize what we're dealing with. That's why you need to be praying. That's why you need to be witnessing. That's why you and I need to rid ourselves of our carnality and the things that hold us back from being effective for the kingdom of God. There might be one that we can snatch from the fire. There might be one. There might be one who our lives and our witness and our testimony can make a difference for. As we close, I want you to, first of all, I want you to think of this. Have you believed the lie that there's not really a hell? Have you believed this deception or have you pushed that away from your mind so much that you become calloused and indifferent towards souls? If you have, my prayer for you is that the Holy Spirit will wake you up. My prayer for me is that the Holy Spirit will wake me up. It's not about my comfort here. Well, I would feel kind of uncomfortable Pastor, if if I witnessed to them and they rejected me, they're going to feel a whole lot more uncomfortable if you've never told them, if you've never shared, if you haven't pursued them. How many of you, if your grandchildren, if the house was on fire, moving down, there wouldn't be anything, wouldn't be anything that could keep you out of that house to get those grandbabies. Wouldn't be anything that could stop you from running after them from pursuing them, doing everything that's possible to protect them, to save them. And the time to do that is now. In eternity, it's going to be too late. My prayer for us as a church is that the church will wake up and we will see that we are dealing with eternal issues. And that as we understand that, it's not about, oh, okay, well, it's getting someone into church and so now the church has X amount of people or we filled a pew. It's not about that. It's about rescuing people's souls for eternity. That's what it's about. It's not about making people happy or making them comfortable. It's about seeing people spend eternity. I want your grandkids to wake up. (laughs) I can't believe I'm here. Huh? That's what I want for my kids. I want my kids, my grandkids, my nieces and my nephews. I want all of them to wake up that moment that they slip into eternity and be able to say, oh my, I can't believe I'm here. Look at this place. And you know what? For you, I don't want one of you to live with the regret that you were not right with God. Well, the word talks about, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. The Bible teaches us this, that at the judgment, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to say this, Lord, I cast out devils in your name. I did all of these works in your name. I did all of these good deeds in your name. And he's going to say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. As the church, 
we need to make sure that we're not just doing good works. We need to make sure that our relationship with God is not a church membership. It's not a church membership or where I attend church or where I'm a member or what committee I serve on or that my good deeds outweigh my bad. Our nature has been changed. We no longer practice sin. That doesn't mean we don't sin and fall short of the glory of God. That means we don't practice it. Our nature has changed. We're different people. I used to be able to do a lot of different things, have no remorse. Now, my nature has changed. Your nature has changed because the Spirit of God comes and dwells within you. And if you are living as a believer, if you think you're a believer and you're living a life practicing sin, a lifestyle of sin, you need to go and look at the Word and see what it says. All right? Because there's going to be people who are going to stand before God and they're going to say, well, I said a prayer. Wait a minute. Preacher told me to stand up or sit down and I did it. But there's been no life change. Friends, we need to truly be born again and we need to leave those old sinful habits and behaviors behind and walk in the freedom and the newness of life that Jesus brings. So I want to pray for you today. It would be so wrong if I didn't give you a chance today. If you're here today and you just say, Pastor, I don't really know where I stand with God because maybe you've never accepted him or you've accepted him, but he's really not the Lord of your life. You're living in sin and disobedience. And you need God to set you free from some of those things. You'd say, I'm living a lifestyle that is contrary to what God's commands are. And we can take that lightly. And there's going to be a lot of people who say, well, I'm okay. They're going to take it lightly. They're going to wake up on judgment day. If you're here today and you just want me to pray for you, I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you out. But you say, Pastor, there's stuff in my life that I know if it keeps growing... It's going to destroy me. I want to serve God with all my heart, but I need him to break some of these things off of me. I just want to see your hand just real quick. Now, I want to say this to you. What about some of you today? You say, Pastor, my passion's grown cold. To be honest with you, I don't even believe this stuff. I'm indifferent to it. My heart's indifferent. My heart is truly indifferent. And I need God to make me concerned about eternity. I need him to make me concerned about eternity for my family to be concerned about eternity for my children, my grandchildren, my neighbors. And I just want God just to create a passion in me, a belief. I want to be motivated in the right way. I just want you to pray with me that my heart's going to be set afire and God's going to give me a passion for souls, that I'll do whatever I can to rescue those who are lost. Now, Lord, I just pray today for my friends who've raised their hands. Lord, I'm asking you, we've committed our lives to you as our Savior, and we invite you today to rule and reign in our hearts. I pray in Jesus' name that you would expose those things within us that would hold us back. Those You, you said, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. Those things in our lives where we're workers of iniquity, we're practicing the old life. God, I pray in Jesus' name that you would break the stronghold in people's lives and set them free. Now, Lord, I also pray that you would create in us a passion for the lost. I pray, God, that you'd create a burning desire, a concern. It would be my job that, that people would just say in their heart, it's my job, it's my responsibility 
to go after the people at my work. It's my responsibility. God's placed me there. He's positioned me there. It's my job. It's my calling. It's what I want to do more than anything else is see my family know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and spend eternity with him. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that you would place that burning desire within us and remove the things from us that would hinder us from following you with all of our hearts. Now, God, I pray you'd have your way within our lives. And as we yield ourselves to you, I believe that you're going to transform us, Lord. And I really believe this, Lord. I believe there's going to be people you're going to send our way and you're going to send us to who one day will spend eternity with you because we've told them the gospel, because we've witnessed to them, because we've shared with them. We've explained to them the plan of salvation and realized that, God, there is a better way. Lord, we thank you for that, and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.